So, following from the front. Following from the front can be kind of difficult. As I said, how do I follow when, when the leader is not out front? Earlier in the first service, I compared this to line dancing. I tried line dancing. Well, probably tried it a couple of times. Neither one of them was, went smashingly well. Bob doesn't dance much, I guess. But I tried line dancing. I, realized, I figured, okay, there's this whole group of people out there. They're, they're doing this stuff. I'm going to find a place in the middle in the back. That way, I'll always have somebody in front of me that I can follow. And I can look to the sides or I can look in front of me and I'll know what I'm supposed to be doing. Well, we're doing this thing and I'm trying to follow a little bit, but it doesn't matter so much because I'm way in the back, right? And nobody's looking at me. I'm way in the back. And then the whole thing turns and now the people who are on the side are the leaders. No problem. I'm in the middle in the back. I'm still good. And then it turns this way. I'm still good. And you know what happens next. Then it turns the other direction and those who were last shall be first. And now I'm in the front and so other people would be watching me to try to figure out what they should be doing in line dancing and that is not going to go well at all. Okay? How can I be following when I'm in the front? Well, Jesus sends the 70 or the 72, we'll talk about that. He sends them to go ahead of him to the places where he's going to be coming. He's not there yet, but he's going to be coming. And he sends them on ahead of him. Now, last week, Titus into chapter 9, and those who are followers are those who are sent. They have already been told to, to if anyone would, would follow me, he says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you want to be his disciple, his learner, his follower, it's going to come at a cost. And so they have committed to following him, and so as followers, he sends them out. As followers, he sends them ahead of him. They're going to follow from out in front. They don't have Jesus' example immediately in front of them to take their cues from and how they respond to situations. So... To help them with that, in the sending, he gives them a couple of principles to remember as they follow from out front. As they follow being sent to where Jesus is going to be coming. All of us have something of this in our commission, in our sending. Because we know that our Lord is coming. We know that he sends us to others around us. He sends us out into the world while he's not yet returned. He will be coming. He's not here yet. And yet he sends us ahead of him. So there's some parallels here that we can learn something from in the midst of Luke chapter 10. So let me read just, just first of all the opening two verses just to sort of set up the, the story that's before us. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And this is on the journey from Galilee down the Jordan Valley on their way to, the, uh, to Jerusalem where Jesus is then going to be rejected, arrested, and crucified, as he's also been describing to them already. And verse 2, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And that's an odd thing because he's sending them and yet he tells them to pray that the Lord would send laborers. We'll come back to that later. 
But it's a time for harvest. Harvest comes after sowing. Sending comes after following. It's a time for harvest, and he sends these 72. Or some of your Bibles will say 70, and there's, there's a, a mixture. I, I, would, I would expect most people in the room, your Bibles say 72, but certainly some of you, your Bible says 70. And it's interesting, this is one of those questions where you go back to those textual critics who go back to the oldest and the widest variety of the Greek manuscripts and say, what is the original and they cannot be sure. It's either 70. When Luke wrote this, he wrote, Luke either wrote 70 or 72. And they can't really be sure. It probably comes from why 70 or 72. Jesus probably chose that number. And Luke emphasizes it because it probably comes from Genesis chapter 10. Where there are either 70 or 72 different nations or peoples listed in what's called the Table of the Nations. Everybody descended from Adam and Eve and from Noah and his families. All the peoples of the earth come from them and they're described in these 70 or 72 that are listed. Why is it 70 or 72? Well, the Hebrew version of the Old Testament that we have, called the Mesoretic Text, has 70. The Greek Septuagint version translation of the Old Testament, that was clearly being used in the first century in the time of Jesus and the disciples, says 72. So the, the ambiguity probably goes all the way back to that. That's why there's a first century even, or, or second century manuscripts disagree on the number. So, but the number doesn't matter so much. Probably the connection to those nations... Because we are so sent. We are sent not merely to those whom you would expect to believe, like here, Israel, but they're also sent to Samaritans. They're also sent to Romans. They're also sent to Greeks. They're, they're sent to non-Jewish people to believe in Israel's Messiah and Savior, who will be their Savior as well. We are sent to the ends of the earth, even all the way to the Oregon coast, if you will. Okay. So 70 or 72, he sends them out, and he sends them out two by two. Now, two by two is interesting. Why does he send them out two by two? I think it goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 19, where a, an essential fact is verified or validated by either two or three witnesses. And their testimony of Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has said, what Jesus has done, that testimony is, to be, is not to be taken merely on the witness of one, but is to be taken on the witness of two. Jesus said his own words didn't validate him, but, but his word and also the things that the Father did through him and also the Father's word in the Old Testament about him. Those bore witness of him. And now, by two witnesses. Their message going ahead of Jesus will be validated. Your witness to others that he would send you to is not merely on the basis of what you think about God. It's not about what you think about Jesus. Some people think this, some people think that. That is not the point at all. We really don't care. What has God said about him? The, the verification of your witness comes out of God's word. You will share and yet that is also what God has said in his word. And what you, what you will tell them about the reality of new life in Christ is also seen within your life. The change, the transformation that he makes in us is also a validation, a witness to the reality of the gospel. 
He sends them out two by two in a, in a, with a verified witness. But not only that, there's power in a witnessing community. Don't feel like you have to go it alone. Not in terms of, of following Christ and living this new life that he's given us, but also in terms of how do I share my faith with others. Don't feel like you need to go it alone. It's a wonderful thing to invite somebody that you care about, somebody that you'd love to share faith and hope with. It's a wonderful thing to invite them into relationship with other Christians. Do what Matthew did. Do what Levi did. Have, a, have a, what, what I call a Matthew party. Invite all your tax collector and sinner friends and invite some other Christians to be there with them. Have a community of witness to somebody that you care about. Let them, let them also know of others who could also share about faith in Christ. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for us to try to go it alone. Um, Ecclesiastes 4 talks about if one is alone in the field and falls, there's nobody to help him up. But if two are together, then the one can lift the other. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. Paul and Barnabas went together to encourage and strengthen one another. When Barnabas took John Mark and said, we need to go this way, and Paul then didn't go it alone, Paul took Silas with him, and they headed into Europe. They then gathered Timothy with them as, a, as, a, as one to be mentored, but Paul had his Silas, a peer that he was in ministry with. If, if Paul couldn't go it alone, then neither can any of us. Jesus sent them two by two. Okay, with that sort of as a preliminary, there's some parallels between the sending, as he sent them, so he sends us. He, sends, he sent them ahead of where he was going to be coming, and I can tell you this, Jesus is coming. And yet he sends you to people ahead of his coming. He's sending us to others ahead of his coming, and there's two things I think we want to learn from this well, there, there, there are many details we could pull out, but there's two, two things I want for sure for us to, us to leave with. One of them is in his sending, as you follow from out front, as you follow knowing him and yet not yet seeing him, as you follow from in front, trust God to provide. Trust God to provide what you need. Trust God to provide for those who will believe. We can't carry out this mission effectively on our own. It is only by God working through us. Trust God for those who will believe, but also trust God along the way for what you need. He gives them some strange instructions. Look at verse 3. This all seems very impractical. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Well, there's good news. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. First of all, lambs among wolves. That's not, a, that's not an encouraging metaphor, is it? Great. We're being sent to the slaughter. No, he himself was as a lamb before his shears. He himself was as a sacrifice to the slaughter. He sends us out as lambs, yes, but the Lord is our shepherd. The exercise here is for them to trust him. Will you trust him? Will you trust him so that you don't need to take a money bag? Now, when he says don't take a money bag, he's, that doesn't mean don't take a few coins in your pocket. Don't have a little money in your pocket that you can buy lunch today with. That's not necessarily what he's saying. A money bag, think of 
Judas was given charge of the money bag, which was the money that was given for this, this uh, band of the rabbi and his followers to meet their expenses as they went. Remember, Judas was the one who objected when this woman comes in with this very expensive perfume that would have been a year's wages that could have been sold and that money then deposited into the money bag, well, which Judas used to pilfer out of. But a money bag is, a, is significant financial resources. If somebody who has some resources is taking a trip, they're going to make sure that before they embark on the journey with those that they're traveling with, that they have enough financial resources with them in their money bag, which is going to be protected by others around them. They bring enough in the money bag to meet any potential eventuality that might occur along the way. Something happens here or there, we've got enough finances to cover it. We've got Visa. We've got MasterCard. Whatever happens along the way, we have the resources. Now, I don't want to say, I don't want to contradict the advice that you've been given, which comes right out of Proverbs, to, to prepare for the future, to store up in times of plenty so that you will have resources in times of, of, of difficulty or scarcity. Trouble will come, and it is good to have that emergency fund. That is sound finances. But Jesus is teaching them a principle here, which is trust me for your needs along the way. Go with enough to start, but not necessarily enough to finish. Go, don't take a money bag, don't take a knapsack, don't take extra luggage. Something I tell people when we're backpacking, travel light. We're going to be... Three or four days out there, that, does, that means you do not need three or four or five or six changes in clothing. You really don't. You don't need different shoes for each day. You really don't. You need one good pair of boots. Don't bring a second. They're, they're heavy. You need layers of clothing and some essentials you can swap out day by day, but you, you have layers of clothing that you will add on and you will take off, and you don't need, we don't care if you wore that outfit yesterday. You can wear it again today. We're in the wilderness. We're not at the mall. It doesn't matter, right? And the more that you carry, the heavier it is as you're going uphill. But we do plan for eventualities. We, 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 we instruct people, bring an extra meal. Bring a little extra sheltering clothing just in case the weather turns unexpectedly. We do try to prepare for that. But there's a sense here, don't bring extra baggage. Don't bring all the things you might need, he tells them on this trip. Trust me for what you don't know. Trust me for what might happen. A lot of times, we will be thinking about what could happen, what might occur, what somebody might say, what they might do, and those potentialities paralyze with a fear over worrying about so many things, most of which never occur. Trust me, he says, and trusting me, go. That's why the sandals, I don't think he's telling them to go barefoot. I think he's telling them, don't bring an extra pair of sandals. Travel light. Trust me to provide what you're going to need along the way. One of the men in our, 
in our Monday morning group told a story about when he was a young man that um, he and other young adults were at, at uh, some kind of camp thing at Camp Tadmore, which is a, a, a Bible camp that's shared by our church association. And they were there, and um, one of the assignments that, that they were given were they were sent out actually in pairs, and he and another guy were sent in this old pickup truck to go from Camp Tadmore, which is near Lebanon, Oregon, to cross over the mountains to, to go to Bend on some sort of errand or venture. I don't even know what it was. And they were going to be there a couple of days and then come back, but they weren't given enough gas to actually make it back. They didn't have enough money with them to do all that they needed to do and provide for themselves for the number of days they were going to be gone. They were sent with enough to go. They were not sent with enough to return. Now, first of all, what does that tell you about your, what your camp director feels about you? <laughs> have a good trip, guys. But for them, it was just a couple years knowing the Lord. It was a wonderful experience of trusting God and seeing God provide in unexpected ways. And that was the whole purpose of the venture. It wasn't so much about the errand they were going to run and do. It was about that they had the opportunity to learn that they could trust themselves to the Lord when they were sent that he would provide. That's the approach we have in, our, in this building project we're in the middle of. We have said we will not go into debt. We have said we will not build ahead of what God has provided. But we've also said that as God provides, we will take those next steps which he has provided for us. And one could be asked, well, gee, should we go ahead and build a building, start the building of the building, if we don't have enough money to finish it? Well, we'll count the cost before we build the tower. But if we have the funds that God has already provided to do plans and permitting, we can do that. If we have the funds, in fact, God has provided 80% now, way beyond our expectations, that, that, that we can actually, plans and permitting and the, and the, and the architectural plans and the, the, the um, site work to prepare for construction and foundations and we can actually build the building, we can roof the building, windows and doors, close in the building, sidings up, everything's good and weather tight. The only thing we lack is the interior finishings, light switches, carpeting, cabinets, those kind of important things. We couldn't occupy the building, but the building is closed, the building is weather tight, the building probably has heat and air already. The building will be fine. There's no risk to the 80% that's already been expended if the rest has not yet been provided. We will begin with what God has provided, protecting good stewardship over, over those resources, and yet not fearful to not even take a start until we see the end of it. I don't know a missionary's gone out with their full, let's say, three-year term support already in hand. They have been told that people have said, as God provides, I'm going to be helping support you. And when they have enough of those pledges, they go, not knowing if it actually is going to be realized or not. Along the way, something happened. Somebody that was going to support them is not able to continue. But somebody else that they didn't even know about, God leads them into that team, and they begin to partner with them in that ministry. And somehow, unknown to them, God provides. That's how it works. Are we willing to trust the Lord and step out even when we don't see how all the needs are going to be met? He says to greet no one on the road. Well, that sounds 
like strange advice to somebody that's sent actually to tell other people about Jesus, right? But don't greet anybody along the way. In the Middle East, that's even weirder, okay? The Middle East is, is a lot like Africa in that it's a very relational culture. And I can remember when we were in Southern Africa, and, and I would get so frustrated at times because I want to be at the place where I'm supposed to be on time. I said I was going to be there at this time. I want to be there at that time. And yet, it's starting out in plenty of time to get there on time, but somewhere along the way, somebody wants to, wants to greet, which means talk, which means an extended conversation about their family and mine, which has nothing to do with the issue that they wanted to talk about, but is very important. And inside, I'm screaming because now I'm going to be late. It caused me great frustration until I realized that greeting along the way is terribly important. And Bob, if you don't want to be frustrated and if you don't want to be late, you're just going to have to start earlier. And so I had to carve out time and margin to start early so I could greet along the way and yet still be where I needed to be at the time I needed to be there. Greeting is important. To not greet along the way means that you are on an urgent business that, there, that just cannot be sacrificed. It's kind of like when Elisha has that Shunammite woman come to him and her, her son has fallen deathly sick. And she comes to him and she, and she won't tell him what's wrong and God does not reveal to him what is wrong. But he sends his servant ahead back to her house and he's going to follow traveling with her at a slower pace but he sends the servant on ahead and he says, because it is urgent. And when you go, go and lay my staff upon the child. But go urgently, go intentionally. Don't stop and greet anybody along the way, he tells him. Somebody wants to stop and engage and talk about your family and mine. Now is not the time because you are on an urgent, intentional mission. And I think that's the message we should take from this. He sends us. He sends us. And Rather than being unfriendly then about it, we actually are going to need to plan to, to loiter and listen. We're going to have to intentionally make our plans, even though we might be task-oriented, we have other things we need to also do, we might need to readjust our priorities in order to intentionally make time for the people around us, because that is the urgency that he sends us on. There's an urgent intentionality. We are told by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 to redeem the time for the days are evil, to buy up every opportunity and, and put it to the fullest use. You don't know when you'll have this time, this conversation with this person again. Use the opportunity that God gives us. Being willing to extend God's peace to any and to all. I don't know how they're going to respond, but I will extend his peace to them anyway. Trusting the Lord that some will believe. He says in verse 7, And when you go, remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. He's telling them, you don't have a money bag, but I will provide for you. There will be people whom he already knows. He just didn't tell them. But he knows how he's going to provide for them. You're welcomed into a house. Eat and drink. You're, you're, you as my laborer are worthy of the wages. Don't go from house to house. Shopping for... I had a friend after church. He taught me... When I was a single guy, he taught me how to do this. How to hang around after church and kind of fish for lunch. Right? Just kind of hang around. And he got so good at it that, that one of the ladies would ask him, hey, you want to come over to lunch at our house? You know what he would say? What are you having? 
Because he's conveying that invitation to the other invitation. And that's the way to wear out invitations, by the way. I do not recommend that, that, that uh, model. I'd rather trust what God provides and don't look to compare. Don't look for an upgrade. Be, compare, be content with God's provision. I remember when we were called to serve, to leave the Air Force and to serve with Transworld Radio. We got out of the Air Force. We, we drove our car. That was that. We had no more house. We, we left Mississippi. We got to Washington, not knowing where we were going to stay. We had a home for three months. And then those people were coming back, and they wanted their house back, understandably. And they didn't want this, this, uh, this guest family of five in their house with them. And so we didn't know where we were going to stay. But another church that we had presented to two and a half months earlier called us back up out of the blue two weeks before and said, do you still need a place to stay? Because we've got this house and we'd love you to stay there for as long as you need without any rent. And God provided for us. Along the way, God met our support. We were on our way. We set a day. Our departure was at hand from Washington on our way to southern Africa. We, we uh, were stopping off in, in, to visit a couple of our churches in Mississippi uh, before we left the country. That's where God had first called us into missions. And there was a missions conference we were going to attend. And our, our sending church there was going to commission us into, into service before we left. And so we're going to be there for two weeks. And so we arranged or we sent word to the church ahead of time. Does, does, does anyone there have a car that we could use for a couple of weeks? And it's a small church, but it's a generous church. Two different families responded back. We have a car you could use. One of them was a car. It ran. It drove. It wasn't especially, it certainly wasn't fancy. It wasn't especially comfortable, but it was a car, and it ran, and it would get us where we needed to go. The other car was a brand new Cadillac. I mean, it was probably only two months old. Brand new, white, red interior. I still remember that car, though I couldn't tell you what model it was. That was Miss Kay's car. Well, I didn't know what to do. I had the, I had the wisdom of a, of a 20-something-year-old, and so I said, well, gee, thanks, that's wonderful. Could we use your car this week, and then could we use your car this week? I thought they just, we'd just use each one. This is what God provided. Well, I learned later, actually, I should have been content with the first car, with the older car. Because, first of all, when I, was when I was cleaning out the Cadillac to give it back to the person after the week, in the midst of cleaning out all the kid crumbs and all that stuff that winds up in a car for a family of five, just as I'm cleaning the car, and Miss Kate was quite fussy about her car, this swarm of gnats invades the car. I don't know if you know about gnats in the, in the, in the southeast United States, but there's a little, little tiny flying insects that bite and bite and bite. They're like mosquitoes, except you can't see them, so they call them noceums. Yeah. And they swarm the car. Now I've not only got to get the crumbs out, but I've got to get all these little bugs out as well. That was a whole lot of extra work. And not only that, I remember us pulling up to the church, the supporting church, a wonderful church, and the president of the Bible college where I was finishing my degree was speaking at the missions conference. And he sees me when, when we arrive and he greets me and, and we go into the service. And then in the midst of his message, you know what he does? He starts talking about the missionary. The missionary who pulled up for the mission conference in this brand new Cadillac. How they must be supporting missionaries well today. And that's when I realized 
the Cadillac was not the best car for a missionary visiting his supporting churches, right? Would have been far better than enjoying the Cadillac to just go with the first car that had been provided. But there's a, there's a lesson in contentment there. Not to shop around, not to look for a better meal. Paul, whether God provides you with the family of the Philippian jailer or whether God provides for you and others to stay in the house of Lydia, the successful businesswoman, whatever God provides, you be grateful and you settle in there. Trust God to provide what we need as we're going before. Trust God for those who will receive and believe and to care for them. To When you enter a town, they receive you. Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That word for heal is actually a more general word. It means to serve, to care for, to restore. And then secondarily, it means to treat medically or heal. So there's a lot more in that about serving the people around us. You don't need the gift of healing to do that. One point is that sent ones need to be serving, sharing the good news, and meeting the needs around them. But not only trusting God to provide what we need, trusting God to provide even those who will believe, but trusting God when others don't. Trusting God when others are not believing. Trusting God even when our message does not seem to be received. Have you had that experience? Have you shared your faith with somebody only have it thrown back in your face? Had to have it mocked, to have it ridiculed? Can you trust God with that as well? Verse 10, whenever you enter a town, they do not receive you. Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Well, that's weird. This is a whole wiping the dust off your feet thing. What does that come from? Well, Jesus in a Jewish culture is using a Jewish phenomena in the first century when Jewish travelers would go to other lands, Gentile countries. When they returned to Israel, they were to knock the dirt of the land where they had been off their shoes so they did not pollute the holy land of Israel with Gentile dirt. That's what's in the background. And so now this Jewish community, maybe it's Chorazim, maybe it's Bethsaida, maybe it's Capernaum itself. If they have rejected Jesus, if they have rejected God's Son, they are before God, not a city of Israel that God can't possibly judge, but they are like Sodom and Gomorrah. They are a pagan city because they have rejected God's Son. That's what he's saying. What do we do with that today? I wouldn't recommend you when you knock on somebody's door, when you go to visit a friend, they just don't receive your faith. I don't, I don't recommend you to, you know, knock their, the dirt from their house off your shoes before you leave. That's probably not what we're supposed to take away from this. What I do think we ought to take away is recognize that one's heritage is not the issue. Rather, it's one's faith. Capernaum may be the village of Nahum, they may, have a faith, uh, they may have a heritage that connects to one of God's prophets, but what's important for them today is do they believe God's Son? And if they don't, they're just like Sodom or Tyre or Sidon, non-Jewish Gentile pagan cities. Don't rest on your Christian family heritage do you believe? Have you received? In verse 16, Jesus says, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. 
Jesus says this, don't take it personally. If they reject you, maybe it's simply because you've been a, a faithful witness and they heard of and saw Jesus. And it's him whom they re reject. Now, we want to be careful that we don't add any other offense to the offense of the cross. But if I have been faithful in winsomely, kindly, gently sharing the sincerity of my faith in Christ, and if they don't want to hear it, that's with them. But don't take it personally. The issue is spiritually. And that's why he tells them right up front, pray fervently that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into his harvest. They're not going now merely to sow. They are going now. They are sent now into his harvest. So certainly we pray for the harvest. We talk to God about people before we ever talk to people about God. You see, we pray fervently that he would guide us in our interaction, in our words, in our sharing with those that he sends us to. But it's about him. It's not about me. Jesus himself said that. Um, if you knew my father, he said, you would know me. You don't believe in me because he's, he told them you don't believe the father. He is the one who sent me. Jesus says it's about him. It's ultimately about God whether one receives or rejects. But I want to return to that prayer exhortation in verse 2. In verse 2, we were told, to those whom he sent, he appointed 72 and he sent them. And he said to them, apparently in the sending of them, he, sends, he says to them, the harvest is plenty, the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now we could say he's having them to pray that they will be sent out into harvest and not into futility. But what if he's telling them to pray that laborers will be sent out? Who would that be? If they're to pray as they are sent that the Lord would send others into the harvest, who would those others be that the Lord would send? Except possibly the ones who hear them. You know, we, we capture this notion, the Lord sent 72, the Lord sent his 12. The Isaiah famously says in Isaiah chapter 6, commonly heard in missions conferences, here am I, Lord, send me. But our response might rather be, send me? Who am I? Who am I that God would send me? What can I do? That might be our hindering response instead. Can I really make any difference? Do I have the skills, the ability, the, the wherewithal that I could make any real difference for faith in Christ among others? Would God do anything big through me? Well, maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe that's not the point at all. Maybe, maybe what we should be thinking is, we should be praying, Lord, would you... Would you send me to just one? Would you use me to send just one other person into his harvest? If you would use me to send just one other person into his harvest, could that possibly make a difference? Let me tell you about a man named Edward Kimball. 
Most of you probably don't know Edward Kimball. I don't think Edward Kimball has his own Wikipedia page. Edward Kimball is not terribly famous in the bigger scheme of things. But Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher. And Edward Kimball had this guy in his class who wasn't terribly interested. In fact, the only reason he was a, this, this 17-year-old kid was attending church and going to this young adult Sunday school class. The only reason he was there at all is because his uncle had told him. He came to his uncle begging for a job because he, didn't want, to be, he didn't want to be at home anymore. And his uncle said, well, I'll give you a job if... You can work in my shoe store if you will go to church and Sunday school on Sunday. Okay, I don't like it, but I'll do it. And he did it. And he was in Edward Kimball's class. And so sometime during the week, Edward Kimball had this young man on his mind, and he goes and he visits him in a shoe store in Detroit. And there in a, in a, in a back storage room in a shoe store in Detroit, he leads a man named Dwight L. Moody to faith in Christ. And sure, you can think of the rest of the story. Dwight L. Moody goes on to found Moody Bible Institute. We have Moody Radio and Moody Publishing because of his ministry. He, it's estimated he spoke the gospel to a hundred million people in his life and ministry. But I'm not so concerned about those hundred million people. There was one, one man in London who heard the gospel from Moody, and his name was F.B. Meyer. And F.B. Meyer went on to be a famous London pastor and Bible expository. So, some, of, some of the earliest books that I read and began to treasure the scriptures from were commentaries by F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer led a man named Wilbur Chapman to the Lord. No, that's not the same Chapman that the building over here is named after. But Wilbur Chapman was used by God to lead a man named Billy Sunday to faith in Christ. Billy Sunday was an early 20th century evangelist who led a man you probably haven't heard of named Mordecai Ham to the Lord. Mordecai Ham was the one who brought to faith in Jesus, the one who the Lord used to lead a young man named Billy, Billy Graham, to faith in Christ. That's quite an interesting chain, isn't it? From one guy we never heard of who faithfully taught us Sunday school to, to high school age youth. Boy, does that cause us to just pause and, and, and want to ask the Lord to do something in this winter retreat that's just wrapping up at Camp Jonah right now? Let's just pause and do that. Father, would you use that time? Lord, would you use those that have given themselves to lead, to teach, to, to mentor, to come alongside, to listen to and to pray with these students middle school and high school, Father, would you use that time? Father, use it to send another one into your harvest. Because, Lord, the world has yet to see what God would do through the young man or woman that's wholly yielded to you. So, Father, use this weekend in the life of these youth. Use it in the life of those who minister to them. And bring, Lord, your blessing and harvest from it, we pray in Jesus' name. So, Spencer Kimball to D.L. Moody to F.B. Meyer to Wilbur Chapman to Billy Sunday to Mordecai Ham to Billy Graham. And that's wonderful, but that's other people from long ago and from far away. A couple years ago, I was over in the Sundays, or rather over in the seniors ministry on Wednesday because they have lunch. And you know, that's the lunch that God has provided, so I go. And I contently share in it week after week. But, but I, was, I was talking to some, a, a couple of the folks and they told me the story. I said, man, 
That's a wonderful story. I never knew that. This, this is the kind of thing we got to share with the church. And so here's a great opportunity to share this story with the church. So I'm going to ask Margie Hendrickson to come on up. And she has a story to tell about one person. One person. Because maybe what we need to do is pray, Lord, would you just use me to send one more person into your harvest? I don't know who that'll be. I don't know what they'll do. But Lord, would you send me to them? And so, okay. you, we, 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 we were talking there in seniors, and you told me how you, you knew someone else here in the church, and that uh, it, it went back a long way, all the way back to like the 70s. Yes, actually earlier than that. Okay. <laughs> I first met this person in uh, about probably 1961 or so. And uh, <clears throat> I became a Christian in 1973. Uh, there was a church in my home, but it wasn't necessarily a Christian church. But uh, later in 73, I came across a book on Bible prophecy, became a Christian through that. And so in 1976, I'm, um, I like to read the Colombian. And uh, so I read the Colombian, and uh, I see a name in there I recognize. And this person was somebody that had dated one of my sisters uh -huh. in the early 60s. And um, anyway, he had gotten into trouble, and he was in the Clark County Jail. Okay. And, um, so you saw his name in the paper, but not in the, um, not in the community service section. It was more in the police blotter section. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I thought... Uh, when I became a Christian, I took the Bible very seriously, and uh, I thought, well, Lord, I don't think he'd remember me. Um, I kind of wrestled with it for a while. And Probably didn't think he'd listen to you. No, but I had some Bible tracts, so finally I got the courage, and I thought, well, I'll go down and bring him some Bible tracts. There was a passage in particular you mentioned. Yes, and uh, there were actually a couple of them. I was thinking, Matthew, it says, I was in prison, and you came to me. Uh-huh. And then the story about the Good Samaritan, um, you know, there's the priest and the Levite, and they uh -huh. walk around on the other side, yeah. and yeah. kind of a choice to make. Yeah, do yeah, yeah. Do yeah. I walk around on the side with the priest and the Levite, or do I go on the side of the Good Samaritan? And you told me that story about Peter and the sheet also. Yes, uh-huh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, don't call somebody yes. unclean what God has called clean. Yes, uh-huh. Sending, sending, sending Peter to a Gentile. Yeah, that was uh -huh. the second time around. So anyway, I brought the tracks down, and uh, I didn't know for sure that he remembered me. Later, he said that he did, but I couldn't give them to him personally. I gave them uh -huh. to the jailer, and the jailer gave them to him. So you're able to see him and talk to him a little. Yeah, and, and then you could hand these things through the through the he jailer. Remembered me and and uh, told him who I was and that I'd become a Christian, and mm -hmm. you know maybe this would help him. Mm -hmm. So okay, we go to 1993, mm -hmm. and I had gotten a summons for jury duty. And uh, so I'm going back and forth. Um, I was on a jury panel mm -hmm. for, down to the jail and uh, for about two weeks. And so I see a name in the paper again. And it's this person that I had got, gave the tracks to in 76. And I thought, oh, dear, he's in trouble again. Uh -huh. And I thought, well, Lord, I don't know if you remembered me the first time. I don't know if I want to go again. And so kind of wrestled with it again and, and thought, well, uh, I got his address. I could write him a letter. So tell him again about the gospel. So I uh, got his address, and I wrote another letter and told him who I was and shared the gospel with him and anyway said that I was sorry that he was having some issues and I would pray for him. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, didn't think that he would 
acknowledge the letter, even write back. But maybe a week or so later, I got a letter. And he says, yes, I remember who you are. You were one of the three girls, the youngest one. Uh -huh. He used to date my sister. And he says, I remember who you are. And he said, the good news is, I actually became a Christian through those tracks that you brought me in 76. Uh -huh. And uh, so anyway, so uh, let's see. That about the, it, it, I was unsure of whether I should write to him or not. And um, the Lord brought a scripture to me about uh, Peter when the sheet was let down. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was all these different kinds of critters that they weren't supposed to eat. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Lord spoke to Peter and said, what I have cleansed, don't call common. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, we'll write the letter. So I wrote another letter, and then he responded and said that he'd become a Christian. So then we go back, <laughs> go ahead, a few more years. And uh, we'd been attending church here about maybe a year, and mm -hmm. we became Christians, or became members. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, so this was a year. So you went through the membership class. Yes. Yeah, and, went through the membership uh, There you class. go. And plug and there. Mr. Irwin over here, he's up front. He's introducing us. Okay. Introduce uh, the new members to, yeah, at, the, yeah. at the quarterly business meeting, yeah. which yeah. we're going to have today. Yeah. So anyway, uh, as we're leaving uh, the meeting, we hear this voice behind us calling, and he says, Margie, Paul. And so we get to the door, and we stopped and turned around. And here's this man who I wouldn't have known from Adam. <laughs> uh -huh. Wouldn't recognize him after so many years. Oh, no, because uh -huh. I hadn't seen him really since 76. And uh, anyway, so he tells me who he was, and I w could have been knocked over with a feather. Uh -huh. I just, you know, I was so thrilled and pleased to see that he had really uh -huh. got his life straightened out, was a strong uh -huh. Christian, uh -huh. and was serving the Lord. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. That God, God had given Steve Morosi and uh, his wife Nancy, uh, right here, uh, who who were here in this church then at that time, and they got reacquainted because yeah. of that. And Steve and Nancy had a ministry to two men in prison, right. mm -hmm. and they kept a prayer journal. And the results of those journals, and in between his witnessing and his engagement with men, uh, hundreds came to faith in Christ, and they had the stories of eight hundred different people mm -hmm. in that journal yep. as a result of yeah. him coming to faith in Christ yeah. because somebody went down to see him at the jail yeah. and brought some gospel tracts mm -hmm. that he yeah. might find comfort in her yeah. faith. I wanted him to experience the peace and the joy that we had experienced. Wow. Mm -hmm. Isn't that a great story? And brought him right back around right here at Brush Prairie Church. That, that look what God will do. God, you don't have to send me to hundreds. Lord, would you use me to send just one? Is there somebody in your mind that that might be? I don't know, but who, who do you know? Who has God put on your heart? Who does he send you to? Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would, Lord, send us. Father, that you would continue to have stories, not only out there in other places with people who become famous, but Father, would you have stories of what you will do through the life yielded to you, right here in our own church. Among, our, uh, among ourselves, Lord, would you, would you give us the courage, the willingness, the trust in you to be sent by you, even to just one, that you would use us to share the message and to send somebody else also, by your grace, into your harvest. Father, you know who that person might be. Would you help us to know?
And would you, Lord, jiggle our will a little bit? Would you cause us to be willing to trust you and to follow you? To take a step forward, to follow from the front, trusting that you will provide and that you will indeed bring harvest. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.